verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time and we will, because you see the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It is great to see you. My name is Tyler, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community's downtown campus, and I am so glad that you decided to join us in one of our Sunday morning services uh, today, but I have to be honest with you. As happy as I am that y'all are here, and I am happy, I have some sad news to share. Um, you see, this week, my beautiful mid-century modern solid wood coffee table sustained a deep scratch right in the surface. I mean, it's deep right in a highly, highly visible area of its, its perfect smoothness. So I guess you could say it's been a tough week. Uh, and it, it wasn't anyone's fault. The gouge wasn't like intentionally inflicted in there, but it's there now. It's deep in the wood and it's not going anywhere anytime soon. It is there to stay. And I'd be lying if I told you I wasn't more than a little bit disappointed because I love my coffee table. Uh, it really is a beautiful piece. I mean, honestly, look at it, church, and let me read the manufacturer's description. The Hamry Mila Oval Coffee Table in Dark Walnut is constructed with crisscross leg base, you see it there, uh, for optimal stability and style. The tabletop produces a chic and unique aesthetic. It uh, is designed with sleek surfaces to ensure hassle-free maintenance. The coffee table's dark walnut finish generates a highly sophisticated and timeless appeal. <laughs> so church, it's true. My table, it was made to be chic, unique, sleek, and sophisticated. And now it bears an undeniable scratch. And it's got me feeling a bit down because this table, you see, this table is relatively new. 
I just had it delivered like June 2nd, and so I guess I was hoping for more than four months of kind of pristine perfection from this table. I wanted the factory fresh table to last and feel a brand new for a bit more than one season. You know, I, I wanted it to last. And I thought if I was careful enough, and if I polished it regularly, and if I always used a coaster, right, this thing was gonna last for years, or at least until Christmas, right? But this scratch this week, it ruined that dream. And so this morning, I'm coming to your church, I'm asking for a little empathy, you know? <laughs> Can you help me out? Have you ever had a dream dented, right? Well, I'm, I might use a crayon in it, Paula, but that's another one. Because <laughs> I read that online. But, but have you ever been convinced that something could last but couldn't, right? Convinced that something would last but it didn't. Have you ever felt that a certain something would go on forever, right? That it could last only to discover that it has a finite end, I mean, look, church, you don't have to tell me the answer because we all know what it is, and the answer is yes, right? All of us, each of us knows what it feels like when something we thought would last forever doesn't, right? We, as we've walked through life, we've realized that forever is some time of fiction, right? We, and we felt that knot kind of deep in our guts when what we dreamed would last, right? What we thought would be permanent, what we were positive was unshakable, didn't quite measure up. We've all experienced the end of something we thought would last forever. And so this morning as we begin our time together, I just want to let you know that our message today is about endings, right? Specifically, it's about the ending of a nation that seemed like it would last forever, right? A nation with a strong ruler, a powerful military, and kind of a massive economy. And so most pointedly, this message, it's about the man we've been studying for the past few weeks, Daniel and how he became the first person is in his entire nation to discover that its dominance would not last. And his uh, decision, in spite of realizing that the end was coming, right, he chose to love and serve this country anyway, and I think his decision is instructive for us this morning, and I think that the way that God's at work in it all, I believe, will be encouraging to us this morning. And so we've got a lot to learn, and it's, uh, we'll be working our way through all of Daniel chapter 2. So if you haven't already, will you make your way to Daniel chapter 2? It's on page 737 of our community Bibles, if you've got one of those. And as you're turning, just let me remind you ever so briefly of where we've been in our study of Daniel. So two weeks ago, we started walking through the book of Daniel verse by verse, and we opened our exploration of this new series, Life Without Control, by saying this. First, we had to realize that God is in control. And that was the first week we said God is in control, whether we can see it and when we can't, whether we feel it or we don't. God is sovereign over all. He is in control. And then last week, we were challenged to commit to what we know before we go. Right? We heard from Gabe that in those times when things are uncertain and difficult, it's best to commit to what we know, right? Live with integrity, commit to what we know before we get in circumstances that are difficult and challenging. That's the example we saw from Daniel last week. So we made our way through chapter one. That's where we've been. And now we find ourselves in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And Daniel chapter two begins by telling us that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, right? His spirit was troubled in sleep left him. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, he's having these, these bad dreams, and they're haunting him. These dreams are keeping him up at night, right? They're causing him to pass through these hours of the night with so much anxiety and fear. These dreams are troubling him. And this morning's message centers around Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its interpretation. But if we're going to understand this story, 
And if we're going to understand why these dreams are so significant, we, we've got to understand the role that dreams played in the ancient world. Because the way we understand dreams now and the way they understood dreams then are quite different. You see, dream interpretation was a big deal at this particular point in history. It was something that people took very, very seriously. Now, it's true that dreams might still interest us today, right? I mean, there are times that you can go to websites that'll tell you what your certain dream means. I know that I had a coworker that always used to come in with a dream and describing this dream and what characters and what do you think it might mean if it means anything at all. You can go on Amazon and buy these book guides that claim to be able to help you interpret your dreams. And actually, as I was uh, leafing through some of this stuff online, you know, the two most common dreams, it's being chased and showing up to an event uh, unprepared, right? So dreams, people study these things, they know what it's like. We're still interested in dreams and their interpretation. But in this particular time and in the particular place when Daniel lived and where Nebuchadnezzar ruled, dream interpretation, it was more than just an interest. This was a highly skilled profession uh, that people would consciously cultivate and go and get professional training for. Okay, dream interpretation, it was a big business, almost like an academic profession because dreams were understood to be messages that were given by the gods to help humans navigate the difficult circumstances of life. And so the sharpest and wisest and most capable people, they would be recruited into this field of dream interpretation. And they would study the different kinds and types of dreams, and they were trained in the procedures for how to interpret dreams. And then the most gifted students out of those classes would be given jobs with the most prominent and powerful people in society. So they'd be assigned to work with kings, right, or these great powerful people, and kings would have dreams, and rulers would have dreams, and these advisors were supposed to be able to interpret it for them and help them to make wise judgments about what decisions to make next, right? Unless that sounds so cruel to us now or something that only ancient cultures do, let's remember we still have great advisors that gather around our rulers today, right, that just help them interpret whatever it is, popular opinion polls or cultural analysis, right? So this idea, this shouldn't be too foreign to us. The idea that advisors have folks that interpret things to help them make wise decisions. Dreams were the data of the powerful in the ancient world. And Nebuchadnezzar is having bad dreams, and these dreams are worrying him, and he's sure that they're significant. He's convinced they have something important to tell him. And so he commands all his magicians and all the sorcerers and all the Chaldeans to be summoned to him to tell him his dreams. He wants to know what they mean. And so that group of wise and scholarly people, they arrive at the palace, and they're kind of used to things as they normally go and say, they say, oh, king, tell us this dream, right? Tell us this dream, and we'll interpret it. For you. But Nebuchadnezzar changes the rules because he's so worried and he's so paranoid by what he saw. And so he says, I oh, mean, I know normally I tell you the dream and then you interpret it for me, but this time we're going to do something different. I'm not going to tell you my dream this time. I know that's how things have worked in the past, but this dream, it's so scary. It's got me so worked up on the inside. I'm deeply troubled by it. So I want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you know what it really means. Right? I want to be convinced that you actually have the real interpretation of this dream. And so here's what we're going to do. You're going to have to tell me both the dream and its interpretation. I'm not just going to ask you for the interpretation after I tell you the dream. I'm going to ask you to tell me the dream first. Because if you can tell me the dream, I can trust your interpretation. But if you can't tell me the dream, I can't trust what you say. And honestly, if you can't tell me, I'm going to kill you. Right? <laughs> 
And now immediately it becomes clear to those advisors that, I mean, this is something big is at stake, right? Things are serious. They realize this isn't going to be like their high school lit class, right? They can't count on other folks having read the material and just listening in and thinking of a wise comment to add, right? Anyone else? Have we been there? This isn't going to be like that, okay? This is more like that time when someone really close to you is mad at you, but you aren't quite sure why. You can't remember doing anything wrong, but they insist that you did something, right? Have you ever been there? And they're so upset that you don't know what it is, and you ask them, man, what is it? What is it? And they say, you know what you did, right? Anyone else? You ever been there? Well, it's an impossible situation, isn't it? When you're in those moments, it's absolutely impossible, and that's where these advisors feel like they are. They have nothing to work with. No data. Nebuchadnezzar says, you've got to tell me my dream from scratch and interpret it. I'm giving you no hints, and if you can, I'm going to kill you. I mean, it's, it's terrible. And I think that, that threat, again, this, it's a sign that he's so paranoid and so worked up by this dream. And so the wise men, they know they can't make things up. They can't rely on context clues. They're incapable of producing his dream on their own. And so they ask him in verse 7, they beg, they say, let the king tell his servants the dream, right? Just tell us the dream and we'll show you its interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar stands firm. He doesn't give one inch. And so his servants, they try, to, they try to reason with him a bit. And they say, Nebuchadnezzar, there's not a man on earth that can do what you're asking. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks, it's difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. They say, look, Nebuchadnezzar, you're asking us to do what no one can do. I mean, no one alive can tell you what you've dreamed. And this response makes Nebuchadnezzar furious. And so he orders that all the wise men of Babylon should be destroyed, which means all the smartest people, all the most capable people, all those people that had been recruited into the work of dream interpretation, right? All the New York Times columnists and the NPR hosts and the writers at the Federalists and the Ivy League professors and all the cultural commentators on whatever news channels your favorite, all the smartest people in the culture are now going to be put to death because no one can tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream. Now, as we might remember, Daniel was part of that crowd of the best and brightest. Because remember, Daniel was taken from his home in Babylon, right? And they said he was kind of one of those youths without blemish, those people that stood out among others. He was taken because he had so much promise and capability and molded into a slave in Babylon. And so Daniel's part of these highly educated and competent people that have now been condemned to die by Nebuchadnezzar. And so the king's men come to Daniel's door, and they want to tell Daniel what the king decreed. They say, well, hey, we got to take you. It's about your time to be executed because the king is furious. And we read in verse 16 that Daniel, in the midst of this turmoil, right, Daniel, whose life is on the line, Daniel went in and requested that the king give him a time, right? He makes an appointment with the king so that he might show the interpretation to the king. So Daniel, in response to Nebuchadnezzar's paranoid and panicked decree to kill all the wisest folks of Babylon, requests an audience with the king so that he might do the impossible, right? So that he might tell the king his dream and its interpretation. Daniel sticks his neck out quite literally, right? He puts his life on the line to save his country from destruction, because what would Babylon do without its wisest leaders and aides, right? So to save his country from destruction and to save his colleagues and friends and teachers from death. Daniel requests an audience with the king and he commits to bringing both the dream 
and its interpretation to that meeting. And here's the thing, when Daniel makes that appointment, he has no idea what the king's dream is, right? He has no idea what the dream is. He doesn't make that appointment knowing the dream, but he just knows he needs to act. Daniel takes a huge step of faith, a huge step of faith. And how do we know it's a big step of faith, right? We can tell he's panicked because immediately after he schedules this appearance with Nebuchadnezzar, he runs back to his house and he gets his closest friends together. Do you remember Hananiah and Azirah and Mishael? And he tells them, he says, hey, we've got to pray because I've got a big problem. I've just made a commitment to show up before the king. And I've said I'm going to do what no person on earth can do. I'm going to tell him his dream and the interpretation. But I have no idea what his dream is. Guys, we have got to pray. And I've wondered what that meeting was like. I mean, what do you think happened in that prayer meeting? I wonder how long it lasted. I wonder what Daniel was feeling. I, the text doesn't tell us exactly, but it does say this. Here's a little hint. Uh, it says that Daniel eventually, so giving anyway, Daniel saw Nebuchadnezzar's dream while he slept, right? The text says that. But here's what I think as I started imagining it. It's like, man, so that prayer meeting, they must have prayed, who knows, maybe possibly for hours, but I think they prayed all the way till they're exhausted, right? I mean, you wouldn't go to sleep in the middle of an anxious prayer request like that. I think they prayed and prayed and prayed, and finally when their bodies gave out, right, and they were exhausted from the effort, finally they slip into sleep, and then God shows up. But I just imagine what that prayer meeting was like. I mean, what was it like Daniel stick his life out on the line for the good of his country and his colleagues, but he has no way of knowing the king's request. All he can think to do is pray, and I just wonder what it was like while they were waiting for God to show up. But then God does show up in the dream again. It says that he revealed Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel. And then the text says that Daniel cried out to God in prayer and thanks, right? He's thanking him for making Nebuchadnezzar's dream known. And he said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever who reveals deep and hidden things. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. And then the next morning, Daniel goes to Arioch, the king's guard, and he, Arioch brings him before Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar uh, receives the dream interpretation from Daniel, right? So that's the story in the nutshell. And friends, we've made it halfway through our message this morning, and I know we still haven't had the punchline, but we've got to pause right here. I told you we were going through a big narrative this morning, and we are. We're walking through all of Daniel chapter 2, and I said we've got a lot to learn from this story in God's Word, and we do. We're covering a lot of ground. We're about to hear what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was, what the interpretation means, and what that means for us. That's coming. But before we move any further, I want to pause right here because I suspect that in this room, there are people that might feel like they're in an impossible spot. You might feel a lot like I suspect Daniel felt when he was in that room with his closest friends, right? Staying up and praying, begging God to do something because you've taken a step of faith and you stood up for something that you knew you needed to commit to, and you, you said, I'm going to do the right thing even though I know it's costly, but you're not quite sure now how it's going to turn out. You're in that little room moment where you're praying with some friends, and you're waiting for God to come through, but you haven't heard anything yet, and you've stuck your neck out, and it feels like your life is on the line, right? I imagine in this room there are some people that feel that way this morning. I just want to pause right here at this moment in the story and say that you're not alone, right? 
that at this particular point in our story, right, we see in, in Daniel's life an example, you're not alone, and that 2,700 years ago, a person of ordinary faith, right, Daniel, just like you, stepped out in faith before he knew the outcome, before he was certain how things would turn out. And just like him, many people of faith since have been doing the same thing again and again, taking a big step and trusting God to come through and waiting in the meantime, having no assurance of the result. And if that's where you are this morning, I want to remind you that there is a great example of people of faith throughout the ages who have done the same thing. So you're not alone in that sense. And you're not alone because the God that Daniel prays to, right, the God that Daniel says changes times and seasons and removes kings and set up kings, right? So the God who is Lord over all, that Daniel says, right, that all-powerful God, that good God who we know from Scripture, he's on the throne, Right? And in the midst of this waiting, he hasn't forgotten about you. And though the outcome right now might seem unclear, one day it will be certain and it will be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that that God, our good and powerful God, has never been anything less than you than perfect and kind and loving and wise and gracious towards you. Right? He's never anything less than that. It will all come together at one point, one day. So what seems impossible now and seems overwhelming now, just remember that God is in control. He's in control over all of it. And if you've taken a big step of faith in some way and the outcome seems uncertain, you're not alone. If you feel that this morning, you need to know that you're in a church of other folks who have taken similar steps of faith and you are not alone, right? It's just a quick detour there, but this moment in the story is too important not to say. And so now back to our story, Daniel, he's in Nebuchadnezzar's throne room, right? And he said, I'm going to describe and interpret this dream for the king. And I imagine there's kind of a hush in the room because all the other wise folks of Babylon are there. And I'm sure they're thinking, there's no way he actually knows this dream. How could anyone do it? But they're also really hopeful that he does know it because it would mean that their lives would be saved. And Daniel opens his mouth and he says, sir, sir, what you saw in your dream was a massive statue and it had a head of gold and kind of a chest of silver and a torso and thigh of bronze and some legs of iron and feet that were made of iron and clay. That's what you saw, right? And I imagine that in that moment, Nebuchadnezzar like leans forward a bit, you know? Maybe he and Daniel make eye contact. I don't know. Nebuchadnezzar seems like a tough dude, but maybe he would nod a little bit, right? And let Daniel know, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're on target. That's exactly what I saw. And Daniel continued, he says, as you saw this big statue, right, with the head of gold and all these other layers under it, you were absolutely terrified, right? You were awestruck by this statue. And suddenly, King, in your dream, a great stone appeared. The stone kind of came out of nowhere, a stone unlike any other stone you've ever seen, a, a huge stone, stone not made with human hands, and it soared through the sky. And then this big stone, it smashed into that great statue, and, it, and, when, and when the stone hit it, that entire statue, it, just, it turned to dust, and a wind came, and it blew all that dust away, right? And the statue is just nothing anymore, even though it seemed so great and seemed so permanent. It became nothing, and this stone, it was all that was left, and then this stone grew, and it became a mountain, a mountain so big that it filled the whole earth, right? Was that your dream, Nebuchadnezzar? Is that what you saw in your sleep? Is that what's been keeping you up at night? And I can't imagine what Nebuchadnezzar was thinking because here, just a servant, a slave boy from Babylon had told him what I think he knew in his heart was impossible. And I think he was ter terrified by the dream and he didn't know what it means, but just that decree, I, I think he knew in his heart, yeah, no one can do this, but I'm going to act rashly. But Daniel has just told him exactly what he dreamed without missing a single detail. 
I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar was stunned. And then Daniel offered an interpretation, and he said, Hey, king, you are the head of gold. Right now, you rule over all, right? The God of heaven you has given this kingdom to you. He's made you ruler over, over Babylon, and so you rule every human and beast and everything in your kingdom because God's given you that authority. Right now, Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of gold. You are the king over all. But you won't last, Nebuchadnezzar, and neither will your kingdom, for after you will come another, and then another, and then another, and another still. You see, these parts of the statue, Daniel says, they represent the kingdoms to come, kingdoms that will appear after Babylon, right, and replace you as the dominant kingdom that's mighty overall. And historically, we know that's exactly what happened because after the Babylonians came the Medes and the Persians, and then the Greeks under Alexander the Great came and took over that territory. And then the Romans were there with their multiple Caesars, right, a stream of nation, ruler after rulers, conquering and conquering, taking over the same patch of land, right, where Nebuchadnezzar once reigned. In each of those empires, just as Daniel said, right, they found their end. But Daniel says, as he's interpreting this dream, he says, but there is a day coming, Nebuchadnezzar, when this revolving door of power, right, when this moving from nation and nation and empire and empire, when this revolving door of power, when the rise of fallen nations, it's all going to cease, there's a day coming when the great nations of the earth, signified by this great statue, they're all going to be turned to dust, and it's going to be tossed into debris. And then Daniel says in verse 44, he says, And in those days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, and nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it, right, that kingdom shall stand forever. Daniel says, you saw the stone, O king, right? That stone that came and replaced them all. That stone that becomes a mountain that cannot be moved. Daniel says, that kingdom will turn every other kingdom into dust, and it's coming, right? It's coming. And in that moment, I'm sure folks were shocked that Daniel would have the audacity to say that to the king in his own throne room, because I can't think of another location on earth where it would seem like Babylon was so permanent, right? than in the throne room of its ruler. But Daniel said, no, a day is coming, a stone is coming, and all these kingdoms of the earth, they're going to be dust, right? It seems like Babylon will last forever, O king. But the dream that you recognized as being so significant and so important, that dream, Nebuchadnezzar, has one point, and the point is this, only one nation lasts forever, right? Only one nation lasts forever, and it's not Babylon, Right? Only one nation lasts forever, and it's the nation that God himself will establish on this earth. And church, Daniel's message to Nebuchadnezzar then is God's message for us today. Only one nation will last forever. And it wasn't Babylon, and it wasn't Rome, and it wasn't the Byzantine Empire, and it wasn't the Han Dynasty, and it won't be the United States. Daniel teaches us that only one nation lasts forever, and it's the nation, the kingdom that Jesus announced with his arrival on earth. That upside-down kingdom where first is last and last is first and love is the law and maturity is childlike faith, right? That's the kingdom that will last forever. Only one nation will, and it's Jesus' kingdom. 
right? The kingdom that's described in the Bible is advancing from the days of John the Baptist until now. That kingdom and its king, Jesus the Christ, our solid rock, will outshine and will reign over all the kingdoms of this earth that ever have dominated the earth and any nation that we don't know about that will come to dominate the earth. Only one nation will last forever. And friends, as God's people, that should give us hope. That should give us confidence because it means that though governments might change and though cultural tides might shift and though elections might be won or lost and initiatives might be approved or vetoed, one nation will last forever. And it's Christ's church. We're the citizens of that nation and we will not be let down. There's not gonna be a scratch in this dream or a dent in this dream. One nation will last forever and it's the kingdom that God has established on earth. So no matter what happens in our world, God's kingdom will not be stopped. And one day, heaven and earth will come together and we will see that kingdom in its fullness. And then no other nation will be able to pretend that it rivals God's kingdom, right? The only kingdom that lasts forever. And there will be no more disappointment from spoiled expectations. That perfect kingdom will never end. And that's good news, church, because we are citizens of that nation if we've come to know Jesus. That is good and encouraging news. But at the same time that it's good news, I think it leaves us with a very tough question. And the question is, well, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do being citizens of this forever nation that'll last forever, right? The kingdom that God has established. What do we do being members of that kingdom, but also citizens in kind of the cities and the state and the country in which we find ourselves now, right? How do we keep our knowledge that God's kingdom will last forever from turning us now into neighbors that are disconnected or rude or triumphalistic or proud, right? Maybe another way to put this question, how do we love what we know won't last? If only one nation is going to last forever, how do we love what we know? Okay, this won't last. This isn't the final nation. There's another kingdom coming, but we're here now. How do we love what we know won't last? That's a big question. And I think that's the question God's asking of each of us this morning, especially in the midst of this unique and contentious time in our nation's history, right? How will we love and serve and care for our cities and our states and our nation. When we know from God's word that that's not the forever kingdom, but it's where we are now, how do we love what we know won't last? And I do think our chapter this morning gives us some clues. And that's where we're going to spend our final moments together. So look with me at you will at verses 28 through 30 in Daniel 2. Daniel 2, 28 through 30. This is in our story. These are the words that Daniel speaks to Nebuchadnezzar right before he gives the dream interpretation, right? So Daniel 2, 28 through 30, Daniel says, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Now look at verse 30. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all of the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your mind. I think these 
few short verses are the key to understanding this entire passage, and I think they're critical to help us answer that question, how do we love what we know won't last? Because they show us how Daniel understood himself and his role and his responsibility to Babylon. And I think that allows us to imagine how we as well might live and serve and love our nation. So here's what I see. First, I see that Daniel saw God at work in all things, and second, that Daniel served his nation generously, right? He saw God at work in all things, and he served his nation generously. Daniel, he saw and he served, right? He saw and he served. And I believe we can do the same. So let me explain what these concepts mean, right? So again, in verse 28, Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar that God in heaven who reveals mysteries, right? The God of Daniel's people, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that that God gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream so that the king might see what would come of his nation, right? So let's, let's dig into what that really means. Let's not forget, Daniel might have been the first person to understand the dream, right, to understand, to get the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But he's saying, he's saying, you, King, you were the first one to dream this dream. You were the first one to see these images of the statue and the rock. So he's saying, so God gave that to you first, Nebuchadnezzar. My God, the God that I think the one true God, gave you this dream so that you, King, could understand what's coming. And friends, that's a remarkable perspective when you think about it. That Daniel, through his eyes of faith, through being able to understand how the Lord works, he's able to see that his God is at work even in the dreams of the captor that oppresses him. I mean, do you see that? That's absolutely amazing. Daniel saw God's work even in the dreams of the evil king who was oppressing him. And this awareness, this recognition of God's work in the world allowed Daniel to resist the urge to be bitter or to resist the desire to say, I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to engage with this at all, right? Nebuchadnezzar wants to be crazy. He wants to kill all his wisest people. Let him, right? Let the country go to crap. My life's not getting any better here. I'm going to be a slave for the rest of my life. Why do I need to engage and help, right? But Daniel can see that his God, the one true God, is at work even in the dreams of the king that oppresses him. Friends, that's incredible eyesight. That's incredible awareness that I think comes from the Spirit. So this morning I want to ask, man, how good are your eyes? How good are your eyes? Are you able to see with eyes of faith ways that God might be at work in situations that seem impossible and difficult? Can you see how God might be moving even through that new boss, right? Or even through that painful piece of news, even through that policy that seems really heavy-handed? Can you see with eyes of faith? How good are your eyes? Can you see where God's at work, even in people and in places where it feels like God is absolutely absent and where he may be, right, where they might not love the name of God at all? How good are your eyes? Because I think Daniel was able to know this. He was confident in this truth that it's there if you look for it. God is at work in all things, right? If we agree with what we said our first week, if he's sovereign over all, there are all kinds of ways God is at work, even in people who might claim themselves to be enemies of God. And so perhaps this week you could begin praying for God to open your eyes of faith and help you see more clearly ways that he's already at work, even in places where it feels like he is absolutely absent, right? Even in the toughest places. Daniel could see that God was at work even in Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, and that enabled Daniel to serve his king generously. It did. He was able to see. So Daniel, he, he saw God at work and he served his king generously. Look again at verse 30. Daniel says that he's going to reveal the dream, right, to Nebuchadnezzar and its interpretation 
so that the interpretation may be known to the king so that he can know the thoughts of his mind. I mean, do you see what Daniel's saying there? He's saying, king, I'm going to reveal this to you to help you. You want to know what's been in your dream? Let me tell you what's been in your dream. I mean, this is simple service. He's adding value to the king's life. The king needs understanding, and he's saying, hey, I actually have something to offer. I have something to contribute here. I'm going to tell you this dream and its interpretation so that you can get what you're looking for, so that you can know what the interpretation of this dream is, right? He's saying, let me add value to your understanding, O king. I mean, do you see this heart of service? This is absolutely huge. Daniel takes a massive step of faith when he commits to telling Nebuchadnezzar his dream and the interpretation. And notice this, that step of faith is for Nebuchadnezzar's good so that he might understand his dream, right? And it's also, by extension, for the good of the entire community. And this is what I want us to see in our last few moments together. I think so often we think of bold steps of faith is something that we take kind of as Christ followers. Uh, I think our imagination, we think of these bold steps of faith in terms of confrontation, right? A bold step of faith means I'm confronting something, right? Have you heard this kind of thinking before? Um, I need to take a step of faith to confront injustice. Right? I need to take a step of faith to confront what I know is wrong. I need to stand up for what I know is right, right? We think of these bold steps of faith in terms of confrontation so often. I think this is just how our language and our imaginations have been shaped. And to be clear, there are times that it is appropriate to confront what we know is wrong and to speak up for what we know it is, is right. I think that that understanding of bold step of faith as confrontation didn't come out of a vacuum, right? There are times that's appropriate. But what I think is so impressive here and could be so instructive for us here is that Daniel's bold step of faith isn't a step of confrontation, but it's a step of faith towards contribution, Right? He takes a step of faith forward into contribution. He says, you know what? I'm going to help. I'm going to add something to this situation. And so, church, I've got to ask the question this morning. Do you often think of the ways you can contribute even to a difficult circumstance? Right? Do you often think of the ways that you can contribute something good, something positive, something helpful, even in the midst of a difficult circumstance? Or do you primarily daydream of things you just love to confront, you know? I'd love to let her know, right? I'd love to tell him, just wait till I get my chance to write you, right? Do you think of ways you can contribute to a tough circumstance, or are you primarily daydreaming about what you'd love to confront? Are you thinking and praying and asking God for opportunities to add insight and add value in the midst of a frustrating workplace or a difficult committee or a divided neighborhood association? Are you looking for ways to serve? Are you primarily interested in how you might conquer or assert your own interests and priorities? Because Daniel, in the midst of his captivity, when he would have every right to be hostile and frustrated, he could have easily said, my life is over. I've been kidnapped and it's done. There's nothing I can add. I have a tyrant king who's lord over all. I can totally back out and, ju and just let things turn out how they will. That could have been a response from Daniel, right? Let Nebuchadnezzar hurt his own kingdom. Let him destroy Babylon himself. Daniel could have responded to Nebuchadnezzar and his situation quite differently. But instead, he saw an opportunity to serve the king, right? Not to confront the king, but to contribute, not to confront this time. And that's something that we need God's help to do, isn't it? And that is not easy. 
So in just a few moments, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask God to help us see where He's at work in difficult circumstances in our life. I remember these two parts, Daniel saw and Daniel served. So I'm going to ask God to help us see in prayer places where He's already at work in situations that seem difficult in our life. And then I'm going to ask Him to help us take steps of faith to contribute in the midst of those difficult circumstances. And as I pray, I'd love to invite you to join me in prayer, right? Join me in your hearts as I pray, because this morning, church, we've seen that only one nation lasts forever. It's the kingdom of God, and it cannot and will not be stopped, and it will never let us down. But in the meantime, we're citizens of a nation that won't last, but we've been called to love and serve what we know won't last. So may we become the kinds of people who have good eyes, able to see where God's at work, and because we see that, are able to enter and serve and contribute in value-adding ways to our communities and our neighborhood and our nation, right? May that be true of us, right? Let's pray. Lord, this is a, a big message and a difficult message. Thank you for the comfort and, and the knowledge and the hope that comes from knowing that your kingdom lasts forever and it won't be stopped and it can't be rivaled and its, uh, its dominance is certain, right? I mean, we know that, Lord. We absolutely know that. But at the same time, it is tough to love and serve and care for um, a nation that we know won't last, right? That isn't maybe all that we want it to be or have thought it could be. So God, we're asking now for two specific things, and we're all joining together in prayer. Will you help us all improve our eyesight? The eyesight of our hearts, Lord, our eyes of faith. Can we see a little better ways that you are at work all around us? In places that we've written off as too difficult or too tough, or places where you're certainly absent and we just have to kind of grit it out and survive, right? In those places, God, will you help us to see ways that you're at work? Don't let us ignore it, Lord. We confess that we've done that too often. Open our eyes and let us see ways that you as the Almighty God are already at work. And then, Lord, let us join in. Let us have a heart to serve. Let us not just take kind of bold steps only to confront things that we think need changing. But, Lord, let us think of ways we can contribute, ways we can add value, ways we can give people exactly what they need, Lord, if it's insight, if it's assistance. Lord, we want to be people that can see you at work and that are ready and willing to serve, but we recognize that that is a tough task. And so we're asking you this week to help us and empower us to do just that, Lord. It's in your powerful name we pray and ask these things. Amen. And now we come to the Lord's table where we're reminded each...